Once upon a time, there were two men, a rich man and a poor man. The rich man had great wealth. He had a large home. He had servants. He had the best food, the best wine. He had fields filled with livestock of all varieties. He had everything he needed and much, much more. The poor man, on the other hand, had very little. He had no large home. He had only a shack. He had no property to speak of. No servants. Not even a lot of friends. Excepting a lamb. A small lamb that he had purchased with his last money. But this lamb to him was far greater than any amount of money, any amount of property or wealth. Far from being a source of wool, this lamb was his love. The kind of pet that we all desire, the kind of pet that is always happy to see us that sees us like the men and women that we want to be. He didn't see his owner as a pauper, but he saw him as a kind and loving master. The poor man brought this lamb up as if the lamb was his own daughter, fed the lamb at the dinner table, let the lamb drink from his own cup, They would spend countless hours together, though poor, content with one another's companionship. One day, the rich man had a visitor coming to town from a faraway land, and, and the rich man desired to throw a feast for this good friend. But he was unwilling to look to his own pastures to slaughter an animal for the food. So this rich man, though he had much, in the middle of the night, broke into the poor man's shack, stole the beloved lamb, took him home, slaughtered the lamb, and fed him to this friend who was coming from out of town. Well, if this parable is offensive, it was meant to be. If it's familiar, it should be. We find this parable in the book of 2 Samuel. If you'll recall, this is the parable that the prophet Nathan comes to King David and tells him after David had gone into Bathsheba, got her pregnant, and killed her husband to cover up the whole act. And if you'll recall, David, unaware that Nathan was actually talking about him, says, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this thing shall surely die. And Nathan responds with those famous words, You are the man. Well, David, after this encounter with Nathan, writes a song. (laughs) He writes a psalm, the psalm that we find this morning, Psalm 51. And I want to take a few moments in the time that we have together to consider this psalm in three different ways. And I want to consider the psalm, particularly verses 1 through 12 together. Firstly, I want to consider the greatness of sin. So if you have your Bibles, flip back over to Psalm 51. We'll be 
walking through the major sections. Well, as we begin in the psalm, what is immediately striking is David's deep and profound recognition of his sin, transgression that requires deep and profound cleansing. He says in verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. What's interesting about this statement is that if we walk through 2 Samuel, it seems that until Nathan comes, David is completely oblivious to his wrongdoing. In fact, many scholars argue that because of the placement of this approach from Nathan, that it was at least nine months because the child that came about from this illicit relationship had already been born. And so it took David some time, and particularly it took David a preacher to come and proclaim truth to him. And if we look at 2 Samuel 12, we find this preacher in the prophet Nathan who is speaking on account of God himself. He says this, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, David, I would add to you as much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord? God says to David, I've given you everything. And if you lacked anything, all you had to do was ask. I mean, God had given David the eternal throne of Israel and promised him a great name, a great household, and that in David's seed, in his offspring, would be one that would sit on God's throne, this eternal throne forever. I mean, in many ways, when we look at King David, we're reminded of Adam in the garden, aren't we? Adam has been given everything that he needs. He was a royal priest in God's ever-expanding garden temple. God gives him dominion, companionship, everything that he needs to be fruitful and to multiply God's dominion over the entire earth. And Adam, like David, gets a taste for forbidden fruit. And from a place of power, sitting on the roof of the palace that God himself had given him, lacking nothing, but wanting more, David sees the nakedness of Bathsheba and hears within him the words of the serpent of old. Did God really say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And he takes Bathsheba. He gets her pregnant and has her husband killed to cover up the act. And then seemingly about nine months later, this preacher Nathan arrives, sent by God to tell David a story that he is unwilling to tell or even believe about himself. But once he encounters this word, of condemnation. 
His only conclusion is what we find in verse 4 of the psalm. Against you, and you alone have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. This itself is an interesting statement, isn't it? I mean, it would seem from the story that David has sinned against all kinds of people. Certainly Bathsheba, Uriah, the now dead husband, this child who was born, now dead because of David's sin, the Israelite armies who had now become accomplices to Uriah's murder, letting him die on the battlefield according to David's command. I mean, there's a laundry list of people that David has sinned against, right? But for David, his sin is so deep that he can recognize that primarily, firstly, and only he has sinned against God, that that this is a high-handed transgression against God Almighty, the God that had entered into loving relationship with him through covenant promise. When we think about this, God had given David everything, right? He, he found this poor shepherd in the field, tending his father's sheep and made him king. For, for what reason? Well, 2 Samuel 7 tells us that, that David's seed, his holy and obedient offspring, would be the heir to the throne of God's people. And as God's promise so often does, it is intrinsically related to David's procreation. From David would come a promised one. But as Nathan the prophet tells David, you have despised the word of the Lord. David uses the very setting that God would bring about this covenant promise. David's procreative seed to fulfill his own sexual desires. In a way that is deplorable to God. And David finally sees it. When someone comes and shows him that his sin is against God and God alone. And David here is crushed, heartbroken over his transgression. Not only guilty because he has been caught, but as we move through the psalm, we see that his confession is true and thorough, not only in his tears, but in his acknowledgement that he has sinned against God and therefore God's verdict upon him is true. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you, God, may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David is guilty. He knows it. Now it would be certainly convenient for us to disconnect ourselves from a story like David's, a psalm like this. As we look at God's celestial scoreboard, we can think, well, David has scored a lot more sin points than we have. And yet a prophet comes to us, a preacher that comes God in the flesh, Jesus, in Matthew 5, and says, you know, you've heard it said that you shall not murder. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, to the hell of fire. 
Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery. Indeed, God's judgment towards David is true when he says he's guilty. And God's judgment towards us is true when he says we're guilty according to our sin. But David in the psalm not only recognizes the greatness of his sin, secondly, he recognizes the insufficiency of sacrifice. If we consider David's setting in redemptive history, he is under the law. He is under the Mosaic covenant. He is tied to the Levitical system, this route to communion with with God through the sacrifices of the temple. Those who were unclean would go through some sort of ritual cleansing in order to be cleansed from impurity. Any impurity that might separate them from a holy God and therefore God's temple dwelling. And any impurity would render one separated from God, at least for a time. So they'd have to go through some sort of cleansing rite. David recognizes this separation in verse 11. He says, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Well, as we walk through these verses in Psalm 51, what we find is David either alluding to or directly appealing to different rituals within the sacrificial system that would cleanse one of impurity. He says, wash me, cleanse me, purge me with the hyssop. All these phrases dripping with the blood of temple imagery. He mentions sacrifices, burnt offerings, different cleansing rites in the Old Testament that were used for different purposes in the Levitical system. For instance, David mentions this purging with the hyssop. This would often be used in several different scenarios. One of the main ones would be if you encountered a corpse, either a human corpse or an animal corpse, you would be rendered unclean. This contagion is contagious. And you would have to go through this cleansing with the hyssop, or perhaps you had encountered someone with some sort of skin disorder. One of the reasons leprosy is such a big deal in the Gospels is because a leper would be ceremonially unclean. And if you were to encounter one, you too would need to go through some sort of cleansing rite in order to approach God and worship. And though there were different sacrifices for different sins and impurities, There is no sacrifice in the Old Testament for murder. There's no sacrifice available for high-handed sins against God. Leviticus 15 says, But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because why? Because he is despised the word of the Lord. Exactly the thing that Nathan accuses David of. As David says himself, he is guilty of blood and therefore liable to be cut off from his people. Cast me not away from your presence, O God. 
take not your spirit from me. There is no cleansing rite that will remedy David's estrangement from God. At least not one in the Levitical system. David can rightly conclude in the psalm, you will not delight in sacrifice, or else I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. And if that weren't bad enough, this recognition that there is nothing that would overcome the greatness of David's sin, David recognizes that even if there were some sort of rite or ceremony that would fix his problem, that would address this particular transgression, there is nothing that can fix who David really is. One who has been born in iniquity. Sinful to the core. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. Every man, woman, and child on this side of the Garden of Eden have been born into sin before cursing, lying, hating, or killing right from the womb of our mothers. We are sinful. But as countercultural as this recognition is, as much as it rubs against every morsel of American exceptionalism that we have within us, This understanding is truly the beginning of a turn for David. A turn for us. A turn away from any kind of self-improvement or self-help. And a turn to a far more radical remedy. Brendan Manning writes, To live by grace means to acknowledge my whole life story. The light side and the dark. In admitting my shadow side, I learn who I am and what God's grace means. And this realization of what Manning calls our shadow side reveals not only what we do, but who we are. But this realization is truly the beginning of freedom. The freedom to finally look away from our own doing and to look to the promise of something greater. And it's that promise, a promise of a greater covenant that I want to consider finally this morning. David here, crushed by the preaching of the law from Nathan, calls out to hear a word of good news. He's heard the bad news, right? On verse 8, he cries out for something more. Let me hear joy Let me hear gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. As if to say, forget the sacrificial system. Forget the law. I need unmediated grace from God. I know there is no temple sacrifice that will remedy my plight that will cleanse me from my utter depravity. There is no stepladder that I can climb to get to a place where God can give me a final boost. I need God to meet me where I am, not where I ought to be. Here I am, God, with broken spirit and contrite heart. Meet me here. And from the wreckage that is David's life, He calls out, not merely 
for forgiveness, but for new creation. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. As we go through the Old Testament, we find that David here is prophetically calling out for what the prophets will later announce concerning the new covenant. A covenant that God will make with his people. Ezekiel says this on God's behalf. He says, I will give you what? A new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. All of these looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. As Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, there it is, new creation. That is what David needs. That is what we need. And not just recreation for a chance at a do-over, but recreation in the image of one who does it for us. If not a single cell of sanctity is ours, if not a vestige of original purity is tucked away in the folds of our being, then the only way in which we have hope is found in someone outside of us who lives on our behalf. If our conception is sinful, as David posits, we need one whose conception was pure for us. If our birth is in iniquity, as the psalmist declares, then we need one whose birth was holy and holy for us. And if our lives constantly ooze of selfishness and greed and lust as the psalmist's life portrays, then we need one whose life was replete with righteousness, who resists every temptation, and who kept every divine law for us. We don't need simple forgiveness. We need new life. We need new creation. And this is offered to us today. It's offered in the person and work of Jesus the righteous. So repent and believe the good news. That he has died for our sins and was raised for our justification. In closing uh, this morning, I want to consider two extremes that I think that we can often find ourselves in, in reaction to this psalm. I think the psalm speaks to both of them. If you're anything like me, you kind of bounce between the two extremes. On one hand, we neglect to understand that our sin is ultimately against God, and that it tells us something profound about ourselves, that we're sinful to the core. We neglect to understand that most of the time our aspirations and goals and desires actually reflect the reality that we believe that God has not given us enough. We neglect to understand that our grumbling against neighbor our complaining about our friends and family really reflects our swiftness to curse those who have been created in the very image of God. 
we neglect to understand that our lustful glances reveal the adulterer within each one of us. And the truth is, is we didn't have to be taught these things. We just somehow end up here, right? And what's terrifying is we look at our children and we see it in them. We know it to be true. This psalm has something to say to this, that that we sin because we are corrupt from birth and that our transgressions are against God and God alone. But understanding this reality, accepting this reality is not to damn ourselves, but to finally understand that we need something greater than a life coach. We need a savior. We need new creation. And on the flip side of this, I think oftentimes we can be plagued with the thought that God would or could never forgive someone of my sin level. If people only knew. (laughs) And yet as we look at Psalm 51, as we look at the life of David, I think we can agree that David's lust, adultery, murder, conspiracy, flagrant hatred towards the promise of God puts him in the upper echelon of sinners, right? He's figured this sinning thing out. He's become quite good at it. But as we open the pages of the New Testament, what do we find about David? Did this plea for God's mercy actually work for him? Well, it doesn't take long. We can open up to page one in Matthew. We find this genealogy of Jesus, this promised son. And as we come to verse six, we find Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon. And Matthew has this strange inclusion by the wife of Uriah. You guys remember Uriah, the dead guy that King David had oft to cover up for his sin. Of course, Matthew doesn't say anything about that. It's as almost like Matthew winks at us and says, watch this. And then as we go through this genealogy, Matthew returns to talk about two men who are so important in the heritage and lineage of David. Abraham, the man of faith, and David, the man of faith. Paul will use this same picture of these two great men to talk about justification by faith. And as we walk through the New Testament, as we walk through the Gospels, we find that Jesus is called the very son of David. He sits on the throne of David. He comes from the house of David. He is one who has been given the faithful mercies of David. One who will build the new tabernacle of David. This David... One after God's own heart. And the list goes on and on and on to show that God's promise to bless David's seed and bring forth an eternal king from his offspring was indeed vindicated. And vindicated in the person and work of Jesus. And as we look at these dozens of references, it is easy for us to say, how do, we, how do we square this with what we just read this morning of David's sin? 
How do we square the honor that he has given in the New Testament? What about the adultery? What about the murder? What about the conspiracy? What about his hatred for God's word? What about David's sin? And the New Testament, written by the gracious hand of God, responds to us as if to say, what sin? And so it is with us. As we turn to Christ alone, resting in him for salvation, God looks upon our story that from our perspective looks like wreckage. And the actor that he has chosen to cast us, the the person that he has cast us in this beautiful story of redemption is Jesus Christ himself. And as God our Father looks upon us, he looks upon the new heart that he has given to us. The spirit that he has placed within us. And the perfect righteousness of one who has lived righteously on your behalf. And now the epitaph of your life is written in the blood of Christ, my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. And this is what David preaches to us today. The one who so needed a preacher to come to him and preach condemnation, but also preach this message of forgiveness, which Nathan did. And David turns to us today. He says, I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. And this is the message that David has for us today. That your sins are forgiven in Christ. So return to God. For with him there is mercy. Mercy and abundant redemption. Let's pray together.